Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, Mike Francesa is back from retirement in the same place he left behind. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 109 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Mike Francesa completed his more than a year goodbye tour with WFAN in New York on December 15th of last year, complete with two final shows for both fans and former and current athletes, coaches, and managers to pay homage to the sports pope. All we knew about his future was that an announcement would come in April of 2018. Well, April arrived, and just when the silence started to become deafening, Rumors swirled that Francesa's next gig was in the works. A return back to the fan. That's right. Mike Francesa started his second stint behind the microphone for his drive time show on Tuesday. Now in the studio bearing his name. What a time to be alive. You may remember that The Bridge also paid homage to Francesa before his final show with a baker's dozen worth of guests who worked with him or around him or listened to him. Even Sour Shoes called into the show. It was the most listened to show in show history. The stage, I guess, has then been set for the second goodbye tour when the time comes. All this said, there's only one thing to play here. The monologue I read live at last year's Francesacon 4 to win the Zon for Good contest. And special shout out to Mike Benevento for playing the role of Christopher Mad Dog Russo in this clip. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Hey! 
John. John, Josh, John, what's the difference? John from where? Scranton, Pennsylvania. John from Scranton. All the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, folks. Put your hands together from John from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah! Yeah. 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 In the office, anybody? Yes, that's all we're known for. I'm life? sorry. Chris, real quick. Timmy's a senior this year. How do you feel about that? I was, okay. I was so wrong. I'll tell you, I forgot that my son, it was his last game because going up in the fourth quarter, they were up by 21, okay? Four minutes ago, they were up by five. Well, you know what happened? They took Timmy out. It was the right quarter. They took they my called. son out. Took him out. Was he a six foot two senior? Right. He was supposed to play the whole game. They took my son out. It was the right quarter. Because if this team would have lost that game, they would have never recovered. Listen, guys, Last contestant, I'm sorry. Last contestant, day, folks. Appreciate patience. Fire away. Back in the days of sports talk radio, a dog teamed up with the sports pope, and the sports world would never be the same. There was no way of knowing the impact that Michael Patrick Francesa Jr. would have on the lives of listeners from around the country back when Mike spent his days growing up five damn feet from the Atlantic Ocean. But that young boy grew up to fall in love with sports. Though his fact-checking days are far, far behind him, Mike was once a statistic-wielding savant for CBS Sports and eventually made his way to a studio analyst, without the need of a labelless soft drink to remain sharp. His success from making bold predictions that often failed to come to fruition brought Mike to the radio airwaves and a relaunch station, WFAN. There, Mike wet his feet with weekend shows and a four-hour program from 10 to 2 before taking the leap to drive time and teaming up with Christopher Michael Russo. Mike and the Mad Dog was officially born. Though initially feared to be a huge mistake, the duo quickly developed a chemistry that mimicked that of Lennon and McCarthy. For just short of 19 years, Mike and the Mad Dog talked sports as hard as they could. Nothing could get by him. Turn it on and try him. Mike and the Mad Dog, New Yorkers and New Jerseyans alike grew up with Mike and the dog. They became more like family than actual family members. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. Chris went solo, but his chair stayed empty, ending Mike and the Mad Dog in 2008. And while we're on that, can we get one more reunion before the end of 2017? What time? That's funny! One lousy goddamn time! Gee whiz! Every single beep that GD! Every single time! Though Chris left Mike, would you be worried? Mike indeed was on and afforded us with even more knowledge that we never knew we needed. After all, Mike knows every star athlete to have ever played in the last 30 years and has been to every important sporting event in the last 30 years as well. You know, I've been at every event, uh, barring the Indiana, except for the Indianapolis 500, I've been to every sporting event in the country. Despite his sports knowledge, he never did decide to become a head coach. We learned that the Mink Man and the Mons deserve a six-figure payday for putting up with Mike. That Andy Pettit is a starting pitcher. 
Wait, wait a second. Andy Pettit is a starting pitcher. Andy Pettit's a starting pitcher who's won almost 200 games. Then it would take a Jets receiver three years just to gain 157 yards. You know how long it takes a Jet receiver to get 157 yards? Three years! That an old report is much different than a new report. Was that a new report or an old report? That it's fine to take a quick doze during an interview. Okay. <laughs> that it's fine to have dead air. Okay. <laughs> that it's perfectly acceptable for a first-time caller, long-time listener, to wait on hold for an hour and a half just to get told to get lost. That Michael K. well, you know. In a radio world where Diet Coke flows freely like the rivers of Babylon, and work vacations last just about the entire month of August, there will never be another number one. Number one! Number one! Number one! No one will ever have the same ratings, longevity, resume, and paychecks. Resumes, longevity, ratings, paychecks. However, Mike will remain a part of our lives. Mongo Nation will live on and continue to grow. The Witchin Hour will continue to provide us with twists and turns and changes during every football season. And if another radio host was sitting in my backyard and tried to take the place of Mike, I'd draw the blinds. The bottom line is... Well, wait a sec. Put my mic on! I know I could care less. Today, we're all here to honor the Pope. He'll still get us the sports news any way that he can. Back after this. Let's take a quick break to watch the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30. When we come back, we'll talk to a WFAN and CBS sports columnist about getting an exclusive interview with Mike Francesa before his retirement and the current storylines in New York sports. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of the bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into the bridge. This week, we want to know, do you care that Mike Francesa returned and why? Now to this week's guest in Jason Kaidel. He's a sports columnist for WFAN and CBS Sports and a longtime friend of the show. Jason was able to sit down for two hours with Mike Francesa leading up to his retirement to talk about his career in radio and what would come next with his career. Though Mike's retirement from the fan ended up being a dress rehearsal, the two-part story made for a great read regardless, with Jason hitting on everything you want to know from Mike before his final show. We'll chat about what went into putting that story together, what his conversation with Francesa was like, and what his return means to the fan, New York sports fans, and his legacy, before then closing the show with his thoughts on some of the main storylines in New York sports, from the Jets taking Darnold and the Giants taking Barkley to the Mets and the Yankees, and what team has the better chance of success come October. 
You can follow Jason on Twitter. He's at Jason Keidel. That's J-A-S-O-N-K-E-I-D-E-L. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Jason Keidel. He's a sports columnist for WFAN and CBS Sports and a longtime friend of the show. Jason, thanks for jumping back on. How are you? I'm great, brother. Thank you. It's great to be on. Great to have you back. Always a pleasure to chat, and there always seems to be plenty to chat about. And before I turn back the clocks a little bit with you to do that, as a native New Yorker, as a past listener to Mike Francesa, since he's recently in the New York sports news, I have to first ask, what are your thoughts about his return to the fan? Well, uh, I posted on Facebook the other day that I needed approval from everybody short of Jesus Christ to get what I thought was the last exclusive interview with Mike Francesa last year. And I know he talked to the Daily News and the New York Post, maybe Newsday, various outlets, but I was probably the only one who spent nearly two hours in his office talking to him one-on-one. And I tell you, the entire time, now he was engaged and he was candid and there wasn't anything I couldn't ask him, but I... I don't have that many talents, but reading people is one of them. And I got zero sense that he had any idea what was about to happen. And what I mean by that is he has been adored. He has been the main nerve of New York sports radio for 30 years. And he it was in no way prepared for the end. Uh, he thought he was going to leave WFAN and there was going to be a conga line of network executives pounding on his door, begging him to work for them. So he thought this was more of a hiatus than a retirement. He was basically going to transition from one radio entity, one media entity to another. So when he left and that didn't happen, uh, I felt he got lost. And there's no way. Now, mind you, this is all sports radio, sports media, athletics, the people who play and coach the games. This is all under the umbrella of entertainment. And when you reach a certain status, like Mike Francesa has, uh, you are used to a certain amount of adoration, a certain amount of attention, a certain amount of money, and all that comes with celebrity. And one of the hardest things, maybe the hardest thing for people on that level to process is when the lights go out. And the lights went out on Mike, and he didn't expect we'd all move on. And... Of all people, Mike Francesa should know that that's exactly what happened. New York moved on from Babe Ruth. We moved on from Luke Gehrig. We moved on from DiMaggio, from Mansell. We moved on from Jeter. So the world's certainly going to move on from Mike Francesa, and he did not anticipate that. And he got stuck. When, when Craig Carton got arrested, he tried to uh, strong-arm WFAN into giving him a pay raise. They said no. So he says, fine, I'm going to continue with my retirement. And then when he left, he thought all these people were going to come begging for his services and offer him a pay raise. None of it happened. He wasn't, you know, he may not even been offered a job. I don't know. But he's now coming back to WFAN, locationally speaking, with his tail between his legs, at half the salary he was making when he left. Now, all he had to do was stay with WFAN, and he would have been making his $3 million salary instead of coming back and asking for a job and getting it at $1.5 million. Now, again, that's still a very robust salary, but it sort of shattered the Mike Francesa aura of him as sort of the puppet master of New York sports radio. And it's, it's interesting because Mike is a very intuitive person, but part of what made him so good, his confidence, his arrogance, uh, 
his aggression, all these things made him great at what he did. But the, I think those are also the qualities that blinded him and precluded him from having a certain self-awareness. I don't think he realized that New York is bigger than Mike Francesa, but because he was such a big part of it, he didn't see that coming. And then once it hit, he didn't know what to do. So I think him coming back to WFAN was not just about saving face. It was also about saving his professional soul. He didn't have anywhere else to go. And this is his home, sure, but uh, it didn't work out the way he thought it would. He thought he was going to be paraded out into New York City and, and have all these people just pull at his coattails, asking him to work for them, and it didn't happen. And uh, that, I think, was a major blow to his ego. And now he's back. And certainly WFM would love to have him back because the show that replaced him isn't doing well. But this is not a friendly place for him anymore. Boomer and Geo are, are sniping at him on a daily basis. Uh, a lot of people are very unhappy with Mike, and understandably so. Um, the only true allies he has are Evan and Joe. Evan Roberts and Joe Beningo, of course. So Mike is in a very unusual, well, a unique place in his life because he's so used to being the man in charge so used to being the top man in the ratings books, so used to being the top man at WFAN, CBS Radio, etc. He did not see any of this coming. And um, I guess it's kind of ironic for somebody who comments and studies people for a living that he did not have that kind of information on himself. So it was, I would hope, a humbling experience for him. We'll see where it goes from here. But I knew when I was in his office for those two hours that he had no idea. He was treating this, it was, I forgot his last day, it was December 15th, I think. He was treating December 15th like it was any other day, and he had no idea how big it was. You know, you'll notice athletes say, the hardest part of retiring, let's just use football players as an example. Football players say the hardest part is not practice or film study or reps on the field or anything like that. Not even Sundays necessarily, although they very much miss Sundays. They miss the camaraderie in the locker room. They miss their buddies. They miss their friends. And once that all goes away, once they retire, the team moves on without them. And the team, the town, everyone always moves on. And that's the one thing Mike didn't see coming. And yet it was the most obvious thing that was going to happen. So, again, there's a certain irony to that, particularly for somebody who's been so astutely, astutely aware of his position as Mike Francesa was. It's not surprising to hear that he didn't really know what the next step would be after retirement when you guys spoke. And that seemed to be the case throughout leading up to the month of April when the big announcement was supposed to come and he was going to tell everyone what his next steps were going to be. He couldn't talk about it, obviously, leading up to that, but it, it's, there still wasn't any inclinations as to what the next monumental event would be where he might be going, who he might be teaming up with. And, and it ended up, as we know, it's almost like he just took one of his extended vacations just to create a Twitter account and get ready to release an app come the summertime, which is somewhat what the history books will say this was. It, not so much a retirement, maybe just an extended vacation. When you guys both sat down for that two-hour time period, is there something that you took from that interview itself? I know that he didn't mention what he was going to do next, but you guys got to reminisce about his career, what he's been able to do, some of the things he might want to do in the future. Is there something that still sticks out for you when you got to sit down with him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he was typically vague about the future because, like you say, he promised WFAN that they wouldn't tell him what to do, and he promised 
he would not share his plans with the audience. That was part of this implicit agreement he had with the company. But what, what, what got to me with Mike was how much he cherished what he did for a living. Um, there were two things that stuck out with me. One was I asked him, who is the one person in sports history that you tried to get and could not get? Because, you know, Mike basically could talk to whomever he wanted to. Eventually, over time, over 30 years, you'll get who you want, especially when you're as big as Mike Francesa. And the obvious, the answer was obvious. He didn't even take two seconds to answer. It was Joe DiMaggio. He said he tried for 15 years to get Joe DiMaggio, and he just could not do it. He said he spoke to friends, he spoke to family, spoke to people in the Yankees, spoke to the Steinbrenners. They would not do it. The last gasp effort was he spoke to Ted Williams, who had developed a friendship with uh, Joe DiMaggio. Yes, that Ted Williams. And not even Ted could get him. So that was his one, that was his biggest regret. And the other thing that stuck out with me was how profoundly he regrets the way his relationship fell apart with Pat Riley. Um, I was not listening to sports radio that much during the 90s. I was an adult, but I wasn't. I was more a TV guy than a radio guy, and I was a huge Knicks fan at that moment. Uh, you know, this is when the Knicks were, were actually relevant and going to the finals and losing to the Rockets and Pat Riley. You know, the Knicks were the biggest story in town. That was right before the core four and the Yankees and Joe Torrey and all that. The Knicks had center stage. Anyway, uh, Pat Riley gave Mike and, and Dog, Chris Russo, infinite access, anything they wanted. He'd come on their show literally half an hour before a game. He'd come on with them right after a game. Pat Riley gave them access. He gave no one else. Everybody wanted a piece of Pat Riley back then, and he only gave it to Mike and Dog. So when Pat Riley faxed that uh, resignation in from Greece, he expected Mike Francesa to have his back, and Mike killed him for it. And frankly, it was the right thing to do because what Pat Riley did was wrong. But Pat Riley is a big loyalty guy. So when Mike didn't have his back, he said, how dare you? I gave you everything. You want. Everybody in New York City, the Post, the News, the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, everybody wanted a piece of me. And I only came to you and Chris. And then this is how you do me when I leave New York. He never forgave him for that. And um, he talked about how years later he was at this hotel in, in uh, I think, Beverly Hills, somewhere, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. I forgot the exact place. And his wife noticed Pat Riley was uh, sitting by the pool, the hotel pool, and said, Mike, you need to go talk to him, because it was always bothering Mike that he couldn't fix this, mend this relationship with Pat Riley. Even though he was in Miami, who cares, but he still, it bothered him. So Mike goes over, and, and, and he sits down, and he talks to Pat Riley, said he was with him for two, three hours, and even then, years later, it was like 10 years later, they still couldn't agree. Pat Riley still felt Mike had to have his back. And Mike said, how could I have your back when you fax in your resignation from Greece rather than come to New York and, and, and like just do it man to man, man to the public, man to the town, to the team. Just tell us you're leaving and do it in person. Don't fax it in from Greece. But Pat said, no, when, when you get the kind of access that I gave you, you should have my back no matter what. And that was sort of the fissure that they could never bridge. And that still bothers Mike to this day. That, that really really, really, really stuck with Mike. That really bothers him. Did you put in a, a lot of the legwork 
in the prep for this interview or since Mike has been such a polarizing figure in sports radio, someone that you've listened to throughout many years and, and someone that you knew, was it a little bit easier to do an interview with Mike just because there was so much information available for it? Um, I, I put a couple of days into the questions. I didn't have any limitations. I wasn't censored in any way. Um, it is still very hard to access Mike, even though I've been writing for WFAN.com. There's, um, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but what the hell? There is epic dysfunction between the radio side and the internet side. Uh, the, the WFAN.com has been there. I've been there from the very beginning. Before they even were paying writers, I was there. I went there to write for free because I just want to be part of something big. And then uh, CBS Radio took over, and then they started paying. But anyway, the point is, the radio people only mention the website when it's some promotion, when it affects their radio show in some way. ESPN knows how to cross-pollinate, how to cross-promote. They always You can't listen to an ESPN radio show or watch ESPN on television without them mentioning the website. WFAN is the opposite. They never mention the Internet. They never mention their own website. They don't mention the writers. They don't mention the articles. They don't mention anyone. They'd rather interview someone from Yahoo, from Sports Illustrated, from Pro Football Talk, rather than their own people in their own backyard. It's never made any sense to me. For the first few years, I fought it, and I just was never going to win because the truth is the radio people make more money than the Internet people and the radio people don't want to be told what to do. It's all this childish ego thing. That's all it is. So even though I was with the fan, I still had to go through the proper channels. I had to talk to Mark Chernoff, who's been the program director there for God knows how many decades. Uh, it used to be two people. It used to be Mark Chernoff and Eric Spitz. But Eric Spitz went, to, went uh, got promoted and started running CBS Sports Radio. So that left the kingdom in the hands of Mark Chernoff. So... I had to go through Mr. Chernoff, and then he got me access to Mike, and then it worked out that way. I had interviewed Mike Francesa for a newspaper called AM New York before I joined WFAN. So I would spoken to Mike before, and for whatever reason, Mike and I had always kind of had a shorthand. Um, he respected me because he knew that I understood sports, and I understood uh, reporting, and I understood how to ask questions. So he actually liked talking to me. Uh, again, I don't pretend that I'm unique or, or overly special, but for whatever reason, it worked between us. Maybe it's just because we're both New Yorkers. I don't know, but it worked. So um, once I got into Mike, a lot of people are intimidated by Mike, and understandably so. He's a, a big man physically and symbolically, so I, I, I get it. It's, it's, uh, it can be daunting to be in front of Mike Francesca. He's a very um, powerful presence. So, But one, once I got in the room with him, um, it was fine. Um, the legwork just got the legwork you referred to uh, was just a matter of uh, getting access to Mike. But once I got in the office, uh, there were no issues, and I I didn't hesitate. I got my game face on, and I it was just smooth from there. It's an interesting point in sports radio and and sports media in general, just based off of what the younger generation will do in consuming sports radio, whether on the local market or at the national level. And it's much different than when Mike first got into the business. And I'm sure he'll continue to bring this up as he has in the past, that when he first got a show with Dog back in the late 80s and early 90s, 
they were really the first sports show, uh, especially to do so at such a big level in New York to really take off. Whereas now you can get your news, you can get your sports from so many different outlets that sometimes it's hard to build a brand in 2018 and in the future. Mike is sort of coming back into his brand in a sense in New York City, and he'll still have that later audience that older generation that'll obviously flock back right away and and will immediately start listening and i'm sure we'll see that in the ratings book when that comes out because that's uh, all that they'll be interested about in a couple months but the younger generation might not take as quickly to mike francesa maybe that'll help with him being on twitter quote unquote or having more of a social media presence i know there are some accounts out there that help with that though i don't necessarily think that the fan or cbs sports have opened arms to that yet uh, maybe that will change it's sort of like that mlb dynamic where they don't want you putting their stuff on twitter they'd rather do it themselves even though they're getting free publicity for it to make a long story short do you think this will work really just coming back into the same chair the studio has a different name now of course but he'll just get back to work the listeners will get back to listening to him but overall is this something that can be successful his return and I guess for 10 15 years he'll be able to keep this going and and be successful with it do you think this will work this time around I, I think it will work. It will never reach the halcyon days he had with, with Chris Russo, but I think Mike knows that. And, you know, totally outside Mike's control or his knowledge, the younger generation did assume a certain fiefdom, uh, a certain control of the Francesa brand when they did the Mongo Nation, the Francesa Con, and all that. Mike had nothing to do with any of that. It was just his fans taking over and saying, hey, let's pay tribute to the sports pope and, 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 start this Twitter revolution or this, this, this Twitter movement on his behalf. Mike didn't know anything about that. It just happened. The Mongo nation and the, the, the Francesa con, you know, those were huge successes and, and Mike didn't see that coming. And he admits that. And those have been, those have been big, big, big aids to his brand. Um, the thing is you make a good point. People, the only, most of the people who will listen to Mike, like you said, tend to be older sports fans. And those are the people who still listen to radio. I mean, 16-year-olds don't listen to radio. They don't. They might not even know what radio is unless they're listening to XF, you know, XM and Sirius, and they have some specific program for their music taste. But generally speaking, the radio, the radio's not dead, but it's it's certainly it's part of a larger platform now. It doesn't have the same domain it used to have. So yes, Mike will still work, but it works probably in a smaller way. And I think it's a good thing that he is now three to six thirty rather than one to six thirty. I'm not sure that he could have carried New York for five and a half hours a day, the way he used to, but the reason Mike works, and I think this is an important point, you know, everybody's like, wow, why was the other show CMB tanking? It wasn't that they were bad or they didn't have talent or anything like that. The reason, and again, this goes way back to the eighties, WFAN tanked in the beginning. It almost failed. It almost went bust. It almost vanished because they didn't understand. They were bringing in guys like Greg Gumbel and Jim Lampley and all these people. They had this other guy from Cleveland. They were bringing in outsiders to talk to New Yorkers about New York sports. And I'm not sure who the idea that was, but that didn't work. So my former boss, Mark Mason, decides, hey, let's give Chris Russo and Mike Francesa a shot. And then it just all took off from there. So... 
you know, a lot of people don't know who Mark Mason is. He's a very nice man. He recently retired. But Mark Mason is the guy who took Mike Francesa and Chris Russo and said, look, I know you're both egomaniacs, but for the betterment of this station and both of your careers, you're going to work together whether you like it or not. Neither one of them wanted to do it. And, of course, it turned into this legendary team. So it's very important. My point is it's very important, at least in New York City, for New Yorkers to listen to New Yorkers talk about New York sports. I wouldn't blame somebody in Tallahassee if I flew down there and started talking about the Seminoles. They'd be like, well, who's this Yankee talking about the Seminoles? We want somebody from Florida to talk about the Seminoles. And I wouldn't blame them. It doesn't change. You know, you know the old saying, John, all news is local. New Yorkers want to hear other New Yorkers talk about New York sports. And now, of course, there's that famous cover of New York, uh, the New Yorker, where New Yorkers see the world as a Statue of Liberty, the Hudson River, and then just a wasteland after that. You know, that's how pretentious and obnoxious we are. And we are. There's no doubt about it. But we want our own people to talk about our own sports teams. And that dynamic will be true in New York. It will be true in Chicago. It will be true in Los Angeles. It will be true in Arlington, Texas, in Omaha, in Orlando, anywhere. We need New Yorkers, and that's why CMB didn't work. It's not because they're not good, they're not talented, they're not articulate, they're not knowledgeable. It's because they're not from here. Bart Scott is from Detroit. Why do we want a football player from Detroit telling us about the Mets? doesn't work. We need Russo. We need Francesa. We need Joe Beningo from New Jersey. We need Evan Roberts. You know, we need our people. We need Boomer Siason from Long Island. We need our people talking about our sports. Well, hoping that one, two, or maybe even three listeners tuning in now are fans of New York sports, I guess we should hit on that demographic to appease them at least and get into some of the X's and O's that have been going on in New York City and beyond. I guess hitting on football, since that's always a popular topic and we're still semi-fresh from the NFL draft, starting with the Jets, it seems like... I don't want to say that they won the draft since there are many more picks after pick one, but based on them being able to take Sam Darnold and seemingly fill a void that has been empty in a sense and not as successful in many recent years, now having that quarterback that can hopefully be their franchise quarterback and become a face of the Jets and, and at least get them back into the postseason. What did you think about them getting Sam Darnold, having him fall to them, and hopefully being able to turn the tide a little bit for the New York Jets? It's it's really hard to argue with the move. Um, it was the safe move. It was the proper move. Was it the best move? Personally, I thought Josh Rosen was the best quarterback in the draft, but it is what it is. If you're not going to go with Rosen, then you go with Darnold. Um, I'm just thrilled they didn't go crazy and get caught up in this Baker Mayfield wave. And anyway, even if they did, the Browns made sure that no one had access to them, which is why they're the Cleveland Browns. They always do the wrong thing. But the Jets, uh, the Jets had a gift fall in their lap, just like when Jamal Adams fell in their lap, just like when Leonard Williams fell in their lap. Uh, the Jets were left to their own devices and make horrible decisions. But when somebody that good, somebody that obvious falls into your lap, you take them. So, look, the Jets, let's be honest, the Jets haven't had a franchise quarterback since Joe Namath in the 1970s. So uh, you do what you can to rectify that, and everything else is just noise. The Jets need to find their next franchise quarterback, and the chances are they just did that because they knew that – uh, Bryce Petty, God bless him, nice kid, tries hard enough. He's not going to be the face of the franchise. 
Christian Hackenberg got kicked out of practice last summer for improperly breaking a huddle. He's never going to throw an NFL pass for the Jets. And uh, Josh McCown is going to be 40 in a year. So, you know, he's the bridge for the next year until they can get Darnold ready. But that's it. And look, I love Teddy Bridgewater. I think Teddy Bridgewater is a wonderful story. And no one is rooting harder for him than I am. But the man almost had his leg amputated. That's how bad his injury was. Can the Jets really bank on him? I mean, God bless him. No one is tougher. No one is more focused. No one is nicer. It's, there's no one easier to root for than Teddy Bridgewater. But the Jets know they can't count on him. And he is, even if he comes back, he is a relatively small guy. Donald's a big strapping kid. He's got a good future. If you saw that Rose Bowl against Penn State, you know he can sling it. You know he's not rattled by the pressure. Playing at USC is almost like playing for a pro team. I'm sure you've heard the joke. The problem with going from USC to the NFL is the pay cut, right? So <clears throat> it's not going to be an issue in terms of his mindset. And by the way, of all the kids in the draft, you had Josh Allen with the uh, ugly tweets. You had uh, Josh Rosen, who apparently questions everything everyone says. I think that's overrated. I would have picked him, but still, there are questions about him. Baker Mayfield, you've got that wonderful arrest video and the crotch grabbing from the sideline. Sam Darnold is the only one, at least between the ears, you have no questions about. So it's I, I would rather have taken Rosen, but Darnold is absolutely the safest pick, and frankly, it's the right pick, and uh, God bless him. I think the Jets might finally become something very soon. New York's other favorite sports team in the Giants picked right before oh. them and went uh-huh. with Saquon Barkley. And it was interesting coming into the draft. I didn't hear any definitive answer as to where the Giants would go. If they might go quarterback and start building who will be Eli Manning's successor. If they might go Bradley mm-hmm. Chubb and help build that defense. There were the rumors that they would go with Barkley. There were the rumors that they would trade down and, and just see who, who would give them a great offer to get a couple more picks. They do go with a player that was touted as the best player in the draft, skill-wise talent-wise, somebody that has incredible success coming out of college, as we saw from Penn State. But as we know, you don't necessarily need to take a running back this early, Thank especially you. one that they're going to have to pay a lot of money in the, in the next preach, couple John, years. Preach, So I don't hate it. I'm sure a lot of Penn State fans who also are Giants fans are ecstatic about it. But just from the X's and O's, the management portion of things, we've seen even running backs as close as this past season and, and guys like Kamara with the Saints and and Thank guys you. on the Kareem Chiefs. Hunt. <laughs> yes, exactly. Kareem Hunt. You don't necessarily have to take a running back that early. I don't hate How the move. How about some guy named David Johnson who was a fifth-round pick? Exactly. How about some guy named Le'Veon Bell who was a second-round pick? Right. So he, he will be someone that – doesn't have a lot of baggage. He's a great person. He's a great personality. Hopefully the Isn't Giants can build him up. But, again, it, it doesn't jump off the page like I thought it would. I guess we could put it that way. Look, I, I am a little bit more vociferous in my disapproval than you are. Maybe you're being diplomatic or kind. I think if you remove the Browns, because nobody's as dumb as the Cleveland Browns, I think taking Saquon Barkley was the dumbest move of the first round. Okay, for all the reasons you stated, I, you know, all I can do is just carbon copy what you've already said. There is ample, endless evidence that you can find great value at running back from rounds two through five, frankly. David Johnson was a fifth round pick. There was absolutely no reason to take Saquon Barkley, but we fell in love with this narrative. Penn State, 
kids from New York City. He's got all the character uh, checks, uh, all the character bona fides. He checks every box on that regard. Apparently, he's a wonderful kid, the hardest worker on the field. But you didn't have to do it. Okay, look, let's assume that Dave Gettleman, the new Giants GM, did not like Rosen or Darnold or anybody on the board, which to me would be crazy. But let's assume that that's what happened. Then you deal the pick, move back a few slots, and then you get uh, uh, Bradley Chubb or you get who I think is the best player in the draft, Roquan Smith. Go back and get your next Lawrence Taylor, for God's sake. I mean, there were so many options that the Giants have. The one thing they should not have done is what they did, and that was draft Barkley. I know he's the highest rated player on the board and all that, but he's still a running back. And you can't pick him just to be cute, just to go across against the tide, just to be counterintuitive or to be contrarian. That's not the reason to do something. Look, maybe, maybe, maybe Barkley will rush for 10,000 yards. Maybe he'll play in the next eight Pro Bowls. Maybe he'll wind up in Canton. I don't think he will, but the truth is you'll find too many running backs just like that in the second and third round, and that shouldn't be ignored, okay? There are only two backs that were taken in the first round of any note right now, and that's Zeke Elliott and Todd Gurley, unless I'm missing somebody. I think that about covers it. Barkley was an unnecessary pick, and you had Eli Manning's successor right there, okay? The Giants could have taken Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen. Either one of them, I think, would have been perfect. Either one of them can handle New York City. You know, we always talk about Latin players in baseball. Let's say a Dominican or Puerto Rican player comes to New York and says, well, not only is he a great player, but we have this huge uh, Latin contingency in New York, this, this huge Latin population in New York City. Well, how about Josh Rosen? A Jewish kid playing in New York City? Are you kidding me? We have more Jewish people in New York City outside of anywhere except Jerusalem. And I'm not, I'm not being cheeky here. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think, I think New York City would have been the perfect place for Josh Rosen. Okay? It matters. It matters. These things, you know, culture, religion, all these things matter. And, and Rosen, what was his biggest default? I still can't figure it out. He actually questioned people's instructions. He actually wanted things explained to him. We're supposed to be turned off by that. I never understood the problem with Josh Rosen. He's the best passer. He's six foot four. He's got maybe the best release since Aaron Rodgers. And so he thinks a lot. What's the problem? Anyway, so I, I, I object to the, the choice of, of Saquon Barkley because I don't think uh, they need to do it. And they could have found somebody of similar value in a round or two. If they didn't like the quarterback, just deal the pick and then get a great defensive pass rusher or a linebacker or a cornerback or that guard from Notre Dame who apparently everyone says is going to be in the Pro Bowl five years to the day after he retires, Quentin Nelson, and just take it from there. I, I, I would have done anything except what the Giants did. It, it really bothered me, as you can tell. I just, I just think the Giants are smarter than that. Yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting dynamic to the early part of the season, the middle part of the season, and the end, depending on how they're able to do. I mean, we went from last season where they they benched Eli Manning and went into tank mode, let's see what we have at quarterback mode, to drafting in the second pick like they're in win-now mode. And maybe they are, but I don't see them coming along as quickly as they need to uh, with a pick like that going so high in a running back and trying to develop that running game. Because as we remember, when they did win those two Super Bowls with Eli Manning, they didn't have a Hall of Fame running back. They had guys that they had drafted in the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds, Brandon Jacobs, the list goes on. But we'll we'll spend uh, too much time exactly. talking and about they, the Exactly, and the Giants have won four Super Bowls. Name the great running back they had who led them to any of them. Right. None. 
So th- this would be a, a storybook ending if they're able to to do it with uh, Saquon Barkley and company. Hey, look, I just want to go years. on the record. I'm not knocking Barkley. I hope he has a wonderful career. By all accounts, he's a wonderful kid. It's just when you look at value, and value is everything in the NFL draft, it was the wrong choice. That's all I'm saying. I hope he does very well for the Giants. Me as but well. But when Eli Manning retires in two years, who's going to play quarterback for them? Right. Well, we'll know he'll take over the jersey sales at least at Models in the city. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the last exactly. major sport to hit on in New York would be baseball, of course, and a tale of two starts for both New York baseball teams. The Yankees getting off on the wrong foot and struggling in the early going, now on a very hot streak, 9-1, and one, two games behind the Red Sox in the American League East, the Mets, on the other hand, got off to one of the best starts in franchise history, if not the best. I think they were flirting with one game of doing so. Now just a half game up, holding the National League East ratings with 17 wins. The Yankees have 19 wins. I don't really hear too many Mets fans poking fun at what the other New York team was doing now, but they might have a little bit earlier in the season. I guess to put a bow on what the baseball season will be like who fares better just based on where we are now I know that's a hard question to ask but since both teams have evened out in a sense we've seen what they're capable of they've cooled off they've gotten hot but we know what will probably be in store what do you think happens with the Yankees and the Mets for this season well uh, let's see the Yankees are stacked what the Yankees have their combination of pitching and hitting is more sustainable. And eventually, Giancarlo Stanton will figure this out. And once he does, I don't know how you're going to pitch that lineup. And by the way, how about a shout-out to D.D. Gregorius, who is the early season AL MVP? How about Nobody that? He's talks, been you know, great. Exactly. Everybody talks about Judge and Stanton and Sanchez and look at all these great kids we have. How about the best player on your team right now? It's D.D. Gregorius. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the Yankees have a more sustainable model right now, and they have more talent. But at the same time, there's a lot more competition for in the American League right now. You've got the Red Sox, who don't seem like they're going anywhere. You've got the Blue Jays, who are very good. And the Astros, of course, are the Astros. The Yankees even out that series last night by uh, winning after losing the first game of that series in Houston. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the competition for the AL pennant is a lot more ornery than it is for the NL pennant. But having said that, the Mets don't have nearly the talent the Yankees have, and the Mets are entirely pitching dependent. So if anything happens to DeGrom or Syndergaard, uh, we're going to have a serious problem. So if the Mets keep playing like this, first of all, it's a great story. Nobody thought the Mets would be any good this year, so the fact that they're in first place still on May, on May 1st or May 2nd is wonderful. So, uh, yes, Washington is the better team. Washington will probably overtake them. The Mets will probably be playing for a wild card. But if the Mets stay relevant and if the Mets win 92 games – or 93 games, and, and grab a wild-card spot, that would be absolutely wonderful. To have both New York teams in the playoffs, there's nothing like it. You know, it's a weird dynamic, John, and, and, and you probably know this, but for people, for the world west of the Hudson, who see New York as this metropolis that has all this stuff, and the art, and the money, and the theater, and all the nine, we have nine pro sports teams, uh, you know, it's probably hard to pinpoint our loyalties in terms of a fan base, but New York is one of those very few cities left in America that's still a distinctly baseball town. I can't explain it. I'm not sure why that is because football has so overtaken every other sport as the sport of America. I mean, 
baseball might be our pastime, but football is America's sport now. It's proven out in the ratings and the money and everything. I mean, it's not even close. But New York is very much, very ardently a baseball town. So if we can get both New York teams in the playoffs, that would be – there's no buzz like New York City buzz in late September, early October when both teams are contending. That's, that's really a special time. And, then of course, you have the football season in its early stages. So that's really, really a special time of the year. Um, so to answer your question, uh, the Yankees have a more sustainable – uh, model and uh, I think they're almost I'd say they're 90% likely to make the playoffs and if they do maybe they make the World Series this year whereas last year they fell one game short the Mets I think would just be happy with a wild card spot if they win a playoff series that would be wonderful but I don't think anybody's expecting the Mets to go to the World Series and they're so pitching dependent if anything if 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 Noah Syndergaard tears a lap muscle again it's over because Matt Harvey's never coming back from where he is and and you can't just ride the Grom, um, and the Mets don't have the kind of bullpen like the Yankees have that can sustain a mediocre rotation, uh, get you just to inning six, and then the bullpen takes over from there. The Mets can't do that. The Mets need stars to go deep in games and to help them win games. And it can be done. It's just the, the Mets are walking a lot thinner baseball line than the Yankees are. The Yankees have more competition, but they're a much better team. The Mets have less competition, but they are a worse baseball team. So they both have a shot, but if you're going to put all your money in one basket, all your eggs in one basket, it would be wise to put it in the pinstripe basket. There is no question about the passion, to say the least. And there's a, a ton of hats and jerseys floating around New York City. And if you're near the train when one of the teams is playing, or both teams, you'll definitely know that they're on the docket for a home game just based on the populace. And hopefully that will continue into October for both cases. Well, I'm being fairly facetious. I'm being a bit facetious here, but, but just to illustrate a point, Eli Manning could uh, be caught in a strip club with his pants down and, uh, I don't know, a 12-gauge shotgun in his lap. And I wouldn't get nearly the clicks reporting on that as I did saying, we're not being fair to Yoannis Cespedes. That would get infinitely more clicks than anything I could write about football, no matter how big the story is. That's how big baseball is. New York fans are so provincial, so possessive, so obsessive over their team. Baseball is it. Now, I, I know baseball's been around longer, and it goes back to the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Giants and the Yankees and all that, but whatever the dynamic is, New Yorkers just don't mess with their baseball. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of Cespedes, and I will attach into my show notes where folks can find your writings for WFAN and CBS Sports, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask what else you have coming on the docket and some things people might be able to see from you in the coming days. Yeah, I, I have an article coming out today. My editors, uh, in light of this latest incident, Matt Harvey was caught at a swanky L.A. nightclub the night before he was pitching in a game, albeit out of the bullpen. He was pitching out of a uh, bullpen against the Padres in San Diego. Now, I know L.A. is only a three-hour drive, but still, Matt Harvey is on the brink of losing his career, and it was more important for him to be next to Halle Berry and Sidney Crawford than to get his uh, pitching right in San Diego. So, again, that, as an isolated incident, isn't that big a deal. But when compounded by everything else that's happened in his life, it really, the optics are terrible, and it really begs the question, is it time to pull the plug on the Matt Harvey project? So that is my article today. Um, I'm really proud. I'm not proud of that, of everything I write. I'm very proud of this one. And it will be on WFAN.com. 
And uh, anybody listening uh, would be, hope, I would be eternally grateful if you'd read it. It should be, uh, I think you'll find it entertaining. And I'll get that out in the show notes as and well. And I'm sorry, I also, write, I also write a column every week. I write three columns a week for WFAN.com, and I write a column every Monday for CBSLocalSports.com. Perfect. I'll fill everybody in on that, and they can continue reading about New York sports because fortunately for both of us, in a sense, the news really never sleeps on the sports side of things in New York City. So at least there's always topics to cover. Jason, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, especially now in a somewhat timely fashion to talk about Mike Francesa and getting to write the first retirement exclusive. Maybe you can put in the bid now to get to write the second in 5, 10, 15 years, however long it'll be. And hopefully the process will be a little bit easier the second time around. But it's been uh, great getting to read that coverage, even though now... He's returned again. The news never sleeps in New York, but we'll continue to read what you'll be putting out for New York sports and continued success with that. And as I said, you're always welcome to come back on and chat. It's always a pleasure for me. Thank you, sir. And I, and I just want to add, add last one thing here in that, although I got the sense that Francesca was not ready for the lights, for the curtain to go down on his career. I have a lot of respect for Mike and what he's done. And I don't think, well, no, it can never be duplicated what he did. He is, the godfather, forgive all the uh, double entendres there, the godfather of New York sports radio. And um, he got to where he is for a reason. He's a very talented, and very focused, and very driven person. But like I said, some of the things that made him so great are also what put him in a very tenuous position now. So I just want to make that clear. Appreciate it, sir. Always a pleasure. Anytime, my friend. Thanks again to Jason for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, fresh off of ranking all 18 films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Joe will break down number 19. Avengers Infinity War, which Rotten Tomatoes describes an unprecedented cinematic journey 10 years in the making and spanning the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Marvel Studios Avengers Infinity War brings to the screen the ultimate, deadliest showdown of all time. The Avengers and their superhero allies must be willing to sacrifice all in an attempt to defeat the powerful Thanos before his blitz and devastation and ruin puts an end to the universe. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mitch. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Billed as a film ten years in the making, Avengers Infinity War had enough hype to earn the biggest opening weekend at the box office domestically and worldwide. 
Oh, how far Marvel Studios has come. In the early 2000s, you could only find Marvel characters in movies distributed by other studios, some to great success, including Spider-Man and X-Men, some failed to varying degrees, including Daredevil, Fantastic Four, and especially Hulk. But Spider-Man and X-Men were proof this formula can work. People like these movies. Marvel Studios had to figure out how to get in the game, but it didn't have the rights to some of its most beloved characters. Sony had Spider-Man locked down. Fox had its claws in Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and the X-Men. So the studio turned to Iron Man and the actor who was born to play him, Robert Downey Jr. Ten years and more than $15 billion at the box office later, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one of the biggest and most influential franchises of all time. Marvel now has the creative rights to Spider-Man, as Sony's attempt at a reboot didn't quite hit the mark. Also, Disney, which owns Marvel, is in the process of acquiring 21st Century Fox, Enter the X-Men and Fantastic Four, all back in Marvel. Oh, how far we've come. The anticipation for Avengers Infinity War started years ago when Marvel announced its slate at Comic-Con, and we knew the Avengers would have to face Thanos at some point since he was teased during the credits of 2012's Avengers movie. So we've been waiting for this a long time. I remember after seeing Captain America Civil War, which came out in 2016, thinking, well, they have to get back together at some point. They have to fight Thanos. Avengers Infinity War will be a tough one to review, as it's a difficult movie to talk about in depth without spoiling anything. So let's tread lightly and go to the tape. Joe and Anthony Russo have now directed their third film in the MCU, with the first two being Captain America the Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War, my two favorite films in the franchise. So I trusted them with such a daunting task of taking on the biggest MCU film to date. And that's what I'll commend it for. The major concern entering Avengers Infinity War was the ability to balance the screen time of all the characters. They did that expertly. You felt every character's presence as they all bring a piece of their movies into this one. What you love about each character is not overlooked and treated with care for the most part. I'm nitpicky about Captain America. I thought he should have had some more time on screen and some more impactful moments, but he is my favorite Avenger and I guess I'm not used to the Russo brothers making something other than Captain America movies. The movie is 2 hours and 40 minutes long. Tack on the 20 minutes of previews and you should plan on being at the theater for 3 hours. That being said, it doesn't feel like it at all. There is not an ounce of fat on this movie. Every scene is necessary. It's a lot of fun to watch all these characters fully realized and interacting with each other. That's a credit to the actors' years of work to understand who they are portraying. The dialogue is great, as usual, with these Marvel films. Led by Robert Downey Jr., this cast is phenomenal. Although Downey isn't much of a stretch to play Tony Stark, that doesn't mean his performance isn't stellar. And the layers just keep going deeper and deeper with each film. He's incredible. And that's just the start. It would take up more than five minutes to go over every single actor who was great in the film. Chris Hemsworth is another standout for me. He has so embodied this character and is able to add another layer in this film to perfection. Let me tell you about Thanos, the character we didn't really know much about entering this film. All the expectations were met as far as how threatening and powerful he is. Josh Brolin does a nice job with him. It's pretty incredible that he has balanced playing Thanos and Cable in Deadpool 2. Thanos is one of the MCU's best villains and he had to be to live up to the expectations. He has a good story, you actually do feel for his character to a certain extent, or you at least understand why he's doing what he's doing. That was really important to this movie. Thanos had to be a good character with all the build-up, and he is. I enjoy the action set pieces as usual with the Russo brothers, and there are some really cool moments within the battles. The powerful emotion from the final battle of Civil War carries over to Avengers Infinity War, which makes the film better. 
One of the problems I have, which I have with most superhero movies, is the balance of power. I feel like Thanos' henchmen seemed unstoppable at the beginning of the movie, but that suddenly changes. I realize it's tough to keep characters at a consistent level of strength, but it could have been a little better in this movie. The bottom line, Avengers Infinity War is in the upper echelon of MCU movies as far as quality. Studio picked the right guys to take on the directing with the Russo brothers. The characters we have grown to know and love are once again at their best, and Thanos delivers even though he's been built up so much over the years. There's nitpicks here and there, but overall this will go down as yet another acclaimed film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'll compare Avengers Infinity War to Evander Holyfield. He is the only four-time heavyweight champion, and as he aged, he still figured out a way to win with heart. With his sustained excellence, he'll always be known as one of the greatest boxers of all time. If you've seen Avengers Infinity War and would like to hear my thoughts on some spoiler topics, visit my blog at cupofdashjoe.com. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.